Thank you, band. You guys can take a seat. Why are you here today? Hopefully it's not to hear Pastor Pete, because he's not here. <laughs> so for those of you who aren't aware, Pastor Pete is taking a little break. He, a couple weeks ago, told us that he had hit a really high burnout spot, and he just needed a break. So he's taken his five weeks vacation all at once and taking some time to rest. So any of you that have his phone number and his email and all of that, I'm asking you, please don't email him or call him, pretend he's out of the country. He's got a guy who's working with him who is a counselor that works only with pastors. So he's got the best of the best when it comes to that, but he definitely needs a mental break. So please just respect this time that he needs just to do some healing and some renewing of his spirit as well. Um, don't be panicked. I had people call me saying, is Pete leaving? Because they heard that he had hit burnout. He's doing this so that he doesn't get to that point. And I know there's a lot of pastors that have hit burnout and they give up ministry altogether. And Pete is definitely not doing that. He has no intention of doing that. So just want to let you know that. And so you can be aware, but he brought us this excellent speaker. So I want to tell you a little bit about Wako. She is a Zen Buddhist priest. Yep. We invited someone into our church that is not a Christian, but she was born a Christian, so she knows what she's talking about. She was raised right here in Napa. She did grow up Christian. Um, she has her PhD and has served as the religion professor at two universities. She currently serves as a hospice chaplain for a large hospice organization in the Bay Area, and she is the author of a book titled Mind Cure, How Meditation became medicine. So join me in welcoming Wako to teach us today about Islam. Thank you. Good morning. Pizza be with you. <laughs> Come on, pizza be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. It is always and everywhere a right and good and joyful thing to give thanks and praise to the source of our being and of the love that binds us into community. Can you explain about the pizza? Because some people weren't here when Pete did. Yes, before he left. Uh, thank you. Pete gave a magnificent sermon, which is available uh, at the website. I highly recommend it. It's one of the best little bits of Christian theology I've ever heard. Um, where he talked about uh, a passage from John uh, the, uh, when Jesus, uh, after his resurrection, meets the disciples in an upper room and breathes on them and says, peace be with you. And uh, Pete made it pizza be with you and gave a marvelous uh, talk about how the job of Christians is to create and make uh, and distribute everywhere delicious, wonderful pizza. And... Uh, he talked about how some folks think that they have the one and only right version of pizza. And when uh, he first, for example, discovered <clears throat> California Pizza Kitchen was serving Thai chicken pizza, he said, that's not pizza, right? And so he talked about the ways that we get exclusive about our tastes. And then he discovered deep dish pizza from Chicago and so forth and so on. So anyway, please find it on the web. Um, it's a marvelous, marvelous teaching. So, uh, that is not the correct slot. 
Yes. That is not the correct slide. Well, I do have, um, I do have, uh, my computer has the correct slides on it, and you can uh, transfer them. Was it the one before that had the music for the first slide? Yes. Okay, that's what I had in there. I deleted it. <laughs> this that you brought on your thumb drive. Oh my gosh, then I, uh. All right, well, okay. Uh, we're going to improvise here. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to um, talk about uh, last week but I didn't have time was uh, kind of where I myself, I'm situated in the world of Buddhism. And so I belong to a religious tradition called Soto Zen Buddhism, which comes from Japan, which came from China, which before that uh, came from India. But anyway, it's a Japanese uh, school of Buddhism that was uh, developed in Japan in the 13th century by a monk named Dogen. And it's a style of Buddhism that uh, kind of ritualizes and formalizes every act. So the way that you walk through a doorway and approach your seat and sit down and stand up and move about a room and carry things uh, and go to the bathroom and bathe, etc. All of this is kind of ritualized and formalized as a way of <clears throat> trying to show us how our ordinary activity is <clears throat> sacred activity. Uh, and so uh, maybe sometime if you're interested on another occasion, I can tell you a little bit more about that. But just to let you know, within the big complicated spectrum of Buddhism, th that's where I fit. How are we doing, Dar? Okay. Well, let us, while she is working on that, uh, would, you, would you stand please and join me in the Lord's Prayer? So as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, let us pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Uh, actually, please remain standing. Um, this uh, is actually what I wanted it to do before the Lord's Prayer. Thank you very much, Dar, for saving my butt. And um, so, so please uh, bring your attention to the call to prayer. And I'm just going to briefly, I'm going to, uh, because it might be too small to see, uh, we have two times the phrase, God is most great. God is most great. I testify that there is no God but God. I testify that Muhammad is the messenger of God. Come to prayer. Come to success or felicity. God is most great. There is no God but God. And so five times a day, this rings out in uh, Islamic cultures. So please just give it your full attention. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. 
Be seated. All right, uh, we can go to the next slide. And next, beyond that, uh, let's see. Okay, so uh, this is within the world of um, Mahayana Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, Zen. This is where I belong. So, as you can see, this is a little map of Buddhist diversity in the United States. And uh, uh, that's where I fall in that spectrum. Okay, you can go to the next slide. Thank you. All right, uh, and the next. So my plan today um, is to tell you a little bit about Islam, and I feel quite self-conscious in some ways doing this because my knowledge of Islam comes from um, books and uh, a little bit of personal experience uh, and some personal relationships, but I am by no means an expert in this tradition, and I'm gonna give you a tiny little bit, and if any of you knows more than I do, please come and correct me. <clears throat> but I'm gonna begin with the life of Muhammad, peace be upon him, and uh, a little bit of uh, an introduction to the major Islamic texts, um, <clears throat> some key principles of Islam, uh, the five pillars uh, of, of Islamic practice, uh, a little bit of history, um, and a little bit of the rise of uh, Islamic extremism, uh, Islamist extremism in the 20th century. Um, and then I'm gonna offer you some uh, directions for the future, kind of some things that you can explore uh, beyond here. All right, so next slide. So according to uh, this book that some of you are referencing uh, as you are going through this series with me, um, Stephen Proth wrote, uh, he sort of compares religions by saying that they each ask a question. The basic question of religions is, what's wrong with the world? You know, why are things the way they are um, when they are not working well? And uh, each religion proposes a kind of a, an answer to that question or a solution, uh, a path to get from problem to solution, and then an exemplar. So in his framework, um, according to uh, the teachings of Islam, the basic pride is shirk, hubris. Uh, the idea that we, can, uh, that we exist independent of God. 
uh, failure to recognize our absolute, utter dependence upon God for everything. And so uh, the, the solution to that is submission, right? And uh, to the will of Allah. And the way to do that is by practicing the five pillars. And Muhammad was the uh, exemplar of that path. I just want to note that Islam is the name of the religion, uh, and the people who practice it are Muslims. Uh, Islam is related to the word uh, salam, which is peace. And again, forgive me if I'm butchering the Arabic. Okay, we can go to the next slide. So Muhammad was born uh, in the sixth century uh, of the Common Era, or as you would perhaps say, uh, AD. Um, and he was born in Mecca uh, to a tribe called the Quraysh. And they were a large, uh, very influential tribe in Mecca. And uh, he was uh, orphaned when he was young, <clears throat> raised by a grandfather and then by his uncle. And then he was sent to live uh, with some Bedouins uh, to learn uh, kind of Arab culture. That was a kind of a rite of passage for young men to go out with the Bedouins and, um, and learn Arab culture and values. Uh, he worked uh, for uh, caravans and so forth. And when he was 25, uh, a woman that he was working for, Khadija, who was a wealthy tradeswoman, offered to marry him, and he did. And they had a, a, a lovely marriage. Um, and some children, and uh, he also, uh, after she died, he had several other wives beyond that. Um, he was a very devout person, and he was noted for his integrity and his hard work. He was also um, accustomed to taking a retreat, and so he was up in a cave in a mountain uh, one night uh, on retreat, and suddenly uh, he is confronted with the presence of uh, what Christians would call the angel Gabriel, um, Jibril, and uh, he is commanded to read or recite. But he's illiterate, and he doesn't know what's he's being asked of him. Um, but he begins to receive these uh, revelations, dictation from Jibril. And so for Muslims, the revelations of the Quran, the words, are literally the words of God dictated directly to Muhammad through this angel. And uh, this is a really frightening and you know, disturbing experience for him. But he goes off to, um, uh, he goes back home and tells his wife and his wife's relative, who's a Christian, confirms that this is a genuine prophecy. And over the next number of years, he begins to receive more of them. And what is remarkable about him is that he is criticizing the local religion and the local social order, right? So uh, the, the culture that he lives in is a polytheistic culture, and he is insisting, nope, there is one God, one God only. Allah means the God. And, uh, and the way that you are treating widows and orphans in this community is terrible, and you need to pay more attention to social justice. And so he's upsetting people. Uh, he's gaining a following. His people are persecuted. And um, Mecca, by the way, is a pilgrimage center and a trade center. And in the midst of it is a, a cubic building, a black cube-shaped building called the Kaaba, which at the time was full of 
uh, idols from various or uh, images. I don't mean to say idols, that's a disparaging term and I don't mean to be disparaging in that way, but um, <clears throat> Uh, these images of local deities and spirits were enshrined there and people came on religious pilgrimages there and uh, the Quraysh fam family made money from this and so uh, Muhammad's preaching actually threatened the social order uh, and the economic order. So eventually he was uh, invited by a Jewish community in a nearby town, Yathrib, now called Medina, to go and resolve some disputes for them and so he and his community migrate from Mecca to Medina. That event is called the Hijra, and it's actually the beginning of the Islamic year, uh, of the Islamic calendar. So year one of the Islamic calendar uh, starts with the Hijra in 622. Uh, there's a lot of conflict between the Meccans and uh, the most, uh, Muhammad's community in Medina. Eventually, uh, Muhammad returns to Mecca kind of victorious and uh, the Quraysh tribe surrenders to him, and uh, he clears the Kaaba of these other images of other deities and declares that it's to be a place of worship for um, Allah alone. The Kaaba is said to have been built originally by Adam and then rebuilt by Abraham and his son by Hagar, uh, Ishmael, who is said to be the ancestor of the Muslims, Arab Muslims. All right, so uh, Muhammad dies in 632, and his father-in-law is, is, uh, becomes the first leader of the Muslim community, the Caliph. So Muhammad is unique in that he is a military leader, and he's also a religious leader. And, uh, and he's a messenger of God. So the Caliph is also both a political leader and a religious leader in this system. Uh, by about 650, the text of the Quran has been uh, fixed. It's transmitted orally for a while, and then eventually it's committed to writing. And um, it consists, well, we'll get there. Uh, next slide. So the Quran uh, consists of 117 chapters or surahs, and they are arranged by length from longest to shortest. And they include prayers and sermons, uh, biblical stories, uh, advice about how to manage community, etc. And um, for example, uh, there is more in the Quran about Jesus' mother Mary uh, than there is in the Bible. Um, and the story of, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, of Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac in the Quran is Abraham goes with Ishmael to sacrifice Ishmael who willingly consents to the procedure and then a ram is provided. Um, so uh, anyway, for interesting differences in the some stories that would be familiar to you. It is written in beautifully poetic Arabic. It's thought to be the sort of the pinnacle of Arabic poetry. And that is what is miraculous about it because uh, Muhammad was illiterate. Right, and so the miracle is the Quran itself, uh, because he he could not have produced it uh, on his own. Uh, the, another uh, important set of um, Muslim literature are the hadith, the sunnah, or the sayings and doings of Muhammad. He was not divine, you know, he was an ordinary person, but he was an exemplary person. And uh, let me just say for a moment the difference between a, a prophet and a messenger. So a prophet 
in this system is understood to be a person who has a message for a particular time and community, like the Hebrew prophets, the Israelite prophets uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. A messenger brings a message for all of humanity. And so Muhammad is uh, a, called the prophet, but he is really, he's a messenger of God. And his sayings and doings serve as an example for other people to base their lives upon. And then uh, Sharia, which is not a monolithic thing, it's kind of various schools of jurisprudence based on the Quran, the Hadith, um, the traditions of the community, uh, reasoning, etc. So it's kind of traditions of legal thought. And there are various schools of Sharia in Islamic tradition. All right, next slide. So uh, a few things that are kind of key principles, and I'm seeing now that you probably cannot read these very easily, but they can be, they'll be made available to you afterward if you'd like them. Islam is strictly monotheistic. One God, God has no equal. So uh, Muslims do not accept uh, the Trinitarian idea of God in Christianity. Uh, they believe that Jesus was a great prophet and much beloved of God, but he was not divine. He was so beloved, in fact, that when he was about to be crucified, God took his spirit up to heaven so that he did not actually suffer on the cross. And he's much revered, as is his mother Mary. Uh, Muhammad, again, was also human and a messenger of God. Judaism and Christianity are both valued as earlier phases of revelation. So God spoke through the Israelite prophets and gave a message to the, the Israelite people. And God spoke to uh, Jesus and his disciples and, got, and we got some revelation there, but we didn't get it right. And so finally, uh, Muhammad re receives the final ultimate revelation. But Jews and, Muslim, and Christians are considered likewise people of the book, people uh, with access to divine revelation. Uh, Muslims do not believe in original sin. They have a kind of an optimistic view of humanity. We're basically good people. Um, they don't value celibacy as a religious ideal. Marriage is kind of a religious duty. Uh, they emphasize practice rather than belief. Christianity, more than any world religion, any major religion, emphasizes correct belief. Uh, every other one that I know about really is much more about practice. And this is, I think, an important uh, distinction to think about. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about practice. Um, Muslims do believe that there will be a final day of judgment, that there is a paradise, a heaven, and there is a hell. Um, and the Quran also makes reference to angels, spirits, and uh, beings called uh, jinn, which are um, spirits. Uh, I think that the uh, Western version of jinn are genies. All right, next slide. Okay, so the five pillars of Islam, the five core practices are first, the declaration of faith, which you heard in the call to prayer. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. And to become a Muslim, you recite that in the presence of witnesses, uh, and you are a member of the community. 
The next obligation is prayer five times a day facing Mecca. So uh, use the direction of Mecca is called the Qibla. And this is a, a beautiful example of a prayer rug that is oriented toward Mecca. And people um, stop what they're doing and, uh, and, and submit to prayer uh, five times a day. Uh, it's quite moving, actually, to be, uh, to people stand before COVID, people would stand literally shoulder to shoulder uh, in, a, in a mosque, in a prayer hall, uh, and do the gestures of prayer together. And even if you don't know what's being said, uh, and you don't know what you're doing, just to simply stand in that line and follow along uh, is a very, very moving experience. I highly recommend it. Uh, so the prayers happen um, before, between dawn and sunrise, uh, at midday, uh, in the afternoon, uh, there's an evening prayer and then one before uh, midnight. And one recites uh, texts from the Quran and they are followed by various gestures, including getting fully down on the floor with your forehead, elbows, and knees and toes on the ground in, a, in an act of total submission to the will of Allah. And I must say that that kind of ritual I really believe that um, doing those kinds of full body practices, which got a lot, sort of lost a lot in the Protestant tradition, um, really, as the body does, the mind follows. You know, and I know that at, raised as a Protestant, when, I, when my religious community was asking me to make full prostrations, I was like, whoa, I'm having a hard time with that. But as I began to do it, um, the attitude of bowing began to uh, emerge in me. So uh, it's a very powerful practice. Um, the next is charity, zakat, giving at least two and a half percent of your, uh, of your resources above your needs. Once your needs are met, two and a half percent of what's left over, and it goes directly to the poor. In some countries, it's collected as a tax, and in some cases, it's not, it's, but it goes directly to the poor. Um, and I, I apologize, my numbering's off here a little bit. Um, the next is uh, fasting during the month of Ramadan. We are now in the month of Ramadan. It ends on the 13th, 12th. And uh, so that means no food, no water, no smoking, no gum, and no sex between the hours of sunrise and sunset. And so uh, because the calendar, Islamic calendar is based on the moon, a lunar calendar, it moves, Ramadan moves through the seasons. So right now it's in the spring here. Um, imagine what it's like in the middle of July, uh, if you're living say in Saudi Arabia. No, no, uh, you know, and imagine even here locally, my, I think uh, my favorite, um, Middle Eastern restaurant in town, uh, Juju's, is um, run by a, a Muslim woman, and uh, I wonder what it's like to serve food to people, you know, to cook food for people and serve it to them all day when you are fasting from food and water. That's quite a discipline. And it is done both to remember uh, the, the Ramadan is the month in which Muhammad first received his revelations of the Quran, um, but it is also to remember the poor. Uh, 
and to experience solidarity with the poor and the hungry and to know that you and a billion other Muslims all around the world are doing this together um, is quite a powerful act. So uh, the, uh, the, the Ramadan ends with a three-day feast called Eid al-Fitr um, coming up next week. And um, the last pillar, the fifth pillar, is the Hajj or the pilgrimage to Mecca. Once in a lifetime, if you have the physical and financial means to do it. Um, and uh, it's a multi-day event. I'll say a little bit more about it in a minute. Um, and it includes another feast called the Eid al-Adha, the Feast of Sacrifice, which is when Muslims commemorate Abraham almost sacrificing Ishmael and Ishmael receiving, you know, and, and a ram being presented uh, instead. And so um, animals are slaughtered and the food is given to the poor. All right, next slide. So with the daily prayers, I mentioned they, they happen between dawn and midnight, or dawn and sunrise, noon, afternoon, sunset, and before midnight. And they begin with ablutions. And so if you want to know more about this, I gave you a link. Dar sent it out earlier this week. And you can see what the procedure involves. But it involves washing your hands and your mouth and your face, your arms, your head, and your feet. And if you uh, go to places where uh, Muslims are, you might find in the bathroom that there's a foot bath so that people have access to bathe their feet before they go to prayer. Uh, the prayer rug faces Mecca the Kaaba, and uh, people begin with the declaration of faith and a, a little short surah called uh, the Fatiha, which is the opening um, in the name of God, the merciful, the, the most merciful and most compassionate. Um, I can't remember all of the rest. I haven't memorized it. So anyway, um, if you want to know the, the text of it or you want to hear of uh, a recording of it, I can get that to you. Let's see. Uh, so the prayers, which only take a few minutes, um, end with people, uh, with the person kind of saying, peace be with you to the angels that accompany us always on our right and our left, recording our good and uh, not so good deeds. And uh, again, it's a very, very moving and powerful experience to stand in a prayer line. So if you have the opportunity to do it, it's quite wonderful. Next slide. Okay, so the Hajj, the pilgrimage, in the pilgrimage, men wear two white garments, they're like a sheet, that have no seams, very simple. And this erases all social distinctions. So it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are or how much money you got or anything, all, everybody's kind of leveled socially by wearing these garments. Women tend to wear kind of conservative, modest versions of their usual dress. Uh, the Hajj begins with a, a period of going back and forth between uh, a, a mountain and a well uh, and uh, it recalls the story when, you may recall that Abraham uh, first had Ishmael by Hagar, who was the servant or the slave of Sarah, before Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. So, uh, in, as in the Bible, Sarah doesn't like Hagar anymore and sends her out with her son. In the Quran version, Abraham brings 
Hagar to Mecca and leaves her there. And she's watching her baby slowly die of thirst and she's freaking out and she's running back and forth looking for water. And miraculously, finally, when she's just about to give up, God provides a well. And so uh, Muslims reenact that and drink from this well. Uh, they go to the Grand Mosque, where they make seven circuits counterclockwise around the Kaaba and spend the night in prayer. Uh, then they proceed out to uh, the plain of Arafat, uh, the site where Muhammad gave his last sermon. And from noon to sunset, they just stand there to be there in prayer uh, and in repentance. Uh, as they are returning back, coming back through this process uh, to a place called Mustalifa, I believe, um, they gather up some stones in their, in their garment and they uh, throw them at a kind of pillar that represents the devil and it's a way of kind of casting away sin and pride and uh, misdeed. The, uh, then there is the, the three-day Eid al-Adha, the feast of sacrifice that I mentioned to you, and the food is distributed to the, to the poor. Finally, you come back to Mecca and finish where you began at the Zumzum well. Only Muslims are allowed um, in Mecca, and so uh, you can only actually see what a Hajj looks like from a source that's Islamic source, you know, like from the government of Saudi Arabia or uh, from a Muslim reporters and journalists who go in and uh, there's some lovely little films of it. So if I encourage you to take a look at it. And the Hajj is what um, persuaded Malcolm X to relinquish his um, own prejudice uh, against whites and his black nationalism because he met people of every possible description, every shade, every walk of life, all together on this event uh, that was an incredible experience of, of uh, common humanity. And it completely changed him. So it's a very, very powerful ritual. Okay, next slide. The unofficial sixth pillar is jihad, a word that you probably have heard um, interpreted as holy war, but that is not really what it means. It means struggle. Uh, just like uh, Israel means struggle. The struggle to do good, the struggle to be a truthful and virtuous person, the struggle to do the will of Allah, that's, that's the greater jihad. The lesser jihad is if people are attacking you or your community or people who are vulnerable, you have the right to intervene and defend. But uh, going out and actively attacking people is not jihad. Another uh, practice every week is Jummah, which is Friday prayers at the mosque. They happen at midday. Um, and that's where one can stand in a prayer line. Men and women um, uh, pray in separate spaces. Muslims practice circumcision. Uh, they, don't they don't generally consume alcohol. Uh, they observe dietary restrictions like avoiding pork. Um, they have uh, kind of distinctions uh, halal, which is okay, and haram, which is not okay, like the uh, Jewish distinctions between kosher and treif. Marriage is a, kind of understood as a religious duty, and one is buried in your hajj garment with your head facing toward Mecca. 
um, with a, a bathing of the body process that's similar to the one uh, for Jews. Okay, next slide. Um, after Muhammad died, there was a, uh, four caliphs, four leaders who were uh, generally uh, accepted by everybody. Uh, and then there was a disagreement. Let's go to the next one. The split between Sunni Muslims, who are the majority, about 80-something percent of Muslims, and Shia, um, was over who should be the caliph. Should the person be elected by the community, the ummah, or should they be a descendant of Muhammad? So Shiites felt that the caliph should be a descendant of Muhammad. Sunnis felt that the, the caliph should be elected. Um, and so the Shiites give religious authority to a person called an imam um, who is descended from Muhammad. And uh, they are, different groups have different numbers of, of uh, imams who they recognize. Let's go to the next one. Uh, despite all of this dispute about uh, elected or inherited, we get the rise of various dynasties, various Islamic dynasties. The Umayyad dynasty, uh, which ruled from Damascus, the Abbasid dynasty, which ruled from Baghdad, and that the Abbasid dynasty represents the sort of flourishing and peak of Islamic scholarship, science, uh, medicine, and philosophy. Baghdad was an incredible cultural capital. Uh, and then we get the Crusades, um, Christians uh, trying to retake Jerusalem from the Muslims. Uh, there are multiple Crusades. Eventually, um, uh, Saladin takes over Jerusalem, and then there's more Crusades. Uh, in the 15th century, we get the Spanish Inquisition in Spain. And then we have the rise of the Ottoman, Safavid, and Mughal empires. I'm not going to go into all of that history in detail. But we have Islamic empires in, sort of based in Turkey, uh, in Iran, which is Shia rather than Sunni, and in India, where we get magnificent works of Islamic art and architecture like the Taj Mahal. Next slide. So here we see, you can get a little sense of how Islam spread. So this part here in green, this is the part that uh, was, that Muhammad uh, kind of expanded into. And then it begins to expand further and further and further until it's huge, uh, enormous territory of Muslim cultures. And when you were in a Muslim territory, you had some religious options. Next slide. You can convert to Islam and become a full citizen uh, of the empire. You could retain your own religious practices, but you'd have to pay a tax. Uh, or you could face armed opposition. Um, most of these were better options than what were available under previous empires. So many, many people chose uh, to one of the first three, to, continue, to convert, to continue their own practices, uh, or to uh, not, and not to have uh, armed opposition. Next slide. Okay. This shows the Ottoman Empire, which 
uh, is important to us because the fall of the Ottoman Empire is really what led to all of the mess that we are having currently in the Middle East. So the Ottoman Empire spanned an enormous amount of territory. It was based in Istanbul, Turkey, and the British and the French carved it up uh, after World War II. So the, uh, so the British and the French created kind of different territories. Let's go to the next slide. Lebanon, Syria uh, for the French and the British carved up uh, out Iran, Palestine, Egypt, created these kind of countries in the Middle East without really any reference to religious or cultural differences. Uh, and then oil is discovered in the Middle East and huge amounts of money become available to the ruling powers uh, and they don't have to tax their people, so they don't have to be really accountable to their people. And so what begins to develop are these very wealthy, oil-rich police states in various parts of the Middle East. After World War II, there's more carving up. Pakistan is divided from India. Um, Pakistan is then divided from Bangladesh. Uh, Israel is created in Palestine, displacing many Palestinians. So there's a lot of uh, problems being created by both the colonial imposition of power and then the colonial withdrawals after the war, Second World War. And, um, well, I'll say more about this in a minute. In um, 1967, uh, Arabs were planning a war against Israel and they preemptively struck uh, and defeated the Arab communities in the Six-Day War. That was a kind of a humiliating defeat. So all of these kind of events begin to sort of set the, the stage for what emerges later. Next slide. So we've got a combination of repressive police states in various Arab countries. We've got leaders such as Ataturk in Turkey or uh, Nasser in Egypt, the Shah of Iran, who want to very rapidly modernize and westernize in ways that are really jarring to people and disconcerting. Um, and so we get the rise of fundamentalist ideologies. A fundamentalist movement is basically an a movement that uses modern technology to spread an anti-modern message. They want to go back to this an idealized kind of pure, what they imagine as a pure original state of religion, and they want to resist some of the disorienting changes of modernity, like the changing roles of women in society and changing attitudes about sexuality and uh, other kinds of disruptions uh, to traditional values. So <clears throat> a variety of these different uh, thinkers begin to emerge. And unfortunately, the United States has supported, at one time or another, all of the groups that we now identify as terrorist groups, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, 
the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia, uh, the Iranian, uh, the Shah of Iran, uh, and, and uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in Palestine, the Taliban in Afghanistan. We supported all of these groups before we opposed to them. And so uh, we have some complicity, actually, in the, uh, in the conditions that we now are struggling with, in my view. Uh, one of the other things that is contributing to the spread of uh, Islamism, uh, kind of radical uh, fundamentalist Islam, uh, is the fact that Saudi Arabia, uh, which has, is governed by a very conservative form of Islam called Wahhabism, spends money sending missionaries all over the world and, uh, and supporting Muslim education in those places. That is another kind of a factor that contributes. So I just want to note, though, that all of those things, all of that history, all of those conditions, you know, con contributed to the rise of 9-11. Uh, and unfortunately, our media really just presents kind of that view of Islam. But overwhelmingly, just like uh, I'm sure none of you support uh, Christian terrorism, Muslims do not support Islamic terrorism. They reject extremism. And so uh, where do you go from here? Next slide. I want to encourage you. I've given you this little lecture here um, that, that covers a ton of territory in a very small way. I want to encourage you to keep educating yourself. Um, I'd encourage you to reflect on the five pillars and what it might be like for you to stop whatever you're doing five times a day and give your undivided attention to God for seven minutes, maybe. Um, I want you to reflect on the practice of uh, fasting and what that might be like. And if you know any um, Muslims who are fasting, don't present them with food. <laughs> and you can greet them by saying Ramadan Mubarak, a blessed Ramadan, or Eid Mubarak when it's Eid later this week. I encourage you to visit a mosque when it is safe to do so. My experience is that Muslims are very eager to um, share their community with you and their hospitality, um, and they want you to know that they are friendly people. And uh, it is a, we have actually a small mosque in town. Uh, I have not uh, been able to be there because I only learned about it during COVID, but the imam there has visited one of the interfaith uh, meetings that we've had on Zoom. So um, I hope that there might be some opportunities for people to actually get to know each other and build relationships with each other. Um, you could also try having a, what, what's called a careful conversation. This is an exercise that I want to just suggest to you for some time. It's a very structured, contemplative dialogue with someone who is religiously different from you. And if that's an exercise that uh, intrigues you, maybe we can find a way to do that after pa Pastor Pete is back but it's quite a, an, an illuminating exercise. And finally, I'd like to encourage you to learn your, a little bit about Sufism, the mystical tradition of Islam. And I would like to close, and I'm sorry that uh, I've gone long here. My professor thing got out of control, obviously, as I was pre preparing this conversation, or this talk. 
Um, but I would like to read to you uh, a poem by the Sufi poet Rumi, who, um, whose way of talking about God reminds me of Pete's way of talking about God. He talks about God being present always and everywhere, and that we, our job is to tune into it, right? It's always there, and we just uh, stop looking. So this poem is called Buoyancy. Love has taken away my practices and filled me with poetry. I tried to keep quietly repeating, no strength of but yours, but I couldn't. I had to clap and sing. I used to be respectable and chaste and stable, but who can stand in this strong wind and remember those things? A mountain keeps an echo deep inside itself. That's how I hold your voice. I am scrap wood thrown in your fire, quickly reduced to smoke. I saw you and became empty. This emptiness, more beautiful than existence, it obliterates existence, and yet when it comes, existence thrives and creates more existence. The sky is blue. The world is a blind man squatting on the road. But whoever sees your emptiness sees beyond blue and beyond the blind man. A great soul hides like Muhammad or Jesus, moving through a crowd in a city where no one knows him. To praise, is to praise how one surrenders to the emptiness. To praise the sun is to praise your own eyes. Praise the ocean, what we say, a little ship. So the sea journey goes on, and who knows where. Just to be held by the ocean is the best luck we could have. Just to be held by the ocean is the best luck we could have. It's a total waking up. Why should we grieve that we've been sleeping? It doesn't matter how long we've been unconscious. We're groggy, but let the guilt go. Feel the motions of tenderness around you, the buoyancy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Waco. <laughs> Finally. Hope you all enjoyed that. If you have not been getting the emails with the resources, write your email address down on a little piece of paper and give it to me and I'll put it into our database. I got an email from someone this morning that I um, know I put them in the database. So also look in your junk folder to see if it's going into your junk folder. And I will put out the slides from her teaching today as well, because we talked about that on Wednesday, so it was really helpful to have those. But also, I want to remind you to go into some of those resources. When she was talking, one of the videos I watched uh, through the library, Jennifer, <laughs> it was inside Mecca, and it was really cool to go on this journey with her and to see all the things she does, and she explains it. And she is a very white, pale-skinned woman, and people are questioning whether or not she's Islam, whether, like, how can you possibly be? So it's really cool in that aspect of being able to see her on this journey and what she's experiencing and what she's doing. So take the time to go through the resources and take this a little bit deeper. Yes. Yes, and uh, next time, 
the uh, original Pentecost, which is Jewish, actually. Pentecost is original. It's okay. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Uh, it's You're in front of the mic. Pardon? You're in front of the speaker. That's why it did it. Uh, it's, uh, Pentecost is originally a Jewish observance that uh, 50 days from Passover to the re revelation of the Torah on Mount Sinai that Christians then made a holiday 50 days after Easter, the uh, birth of the church. Awesome. So we'll talk about awesome. that and Hinduism. So be sure you come next week. All right, let's all stand.